The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Esquire Features, a series of stories written for the magazine and read aloud for your enjoyment. I'm Eric Gillen, web director for Esquire Magazine, and this week's story, The Rumor, was written by John Updike and read aloud by yours truly. Frank and Sharon Whittier had come from the Cincinnati area and, with an inheritance of hers and a sum borrowed from his father, had opened a small art gallery on the fourth floor of a narrow building on West 57th Street. They had known each other as children. Their families had been in the same country club set. They had married in 1971, when Frank was freshly graduated from Oberlin and Vietnam vulnerable, and Sharon was only 19, a sophomore at Antioch majoring in dance. By the time, six years later, they arrived in New York, they had two small children. The birth of a third led them to give up their apartment and the city struggle and move to a house in Hastings, a low stucco house with a wide-eaved right-style roof and view through massive beaches at the bottom of the yard of the leaden, ungliding Hudson. They were happy, surely. They had a dry Midwestern taste, and by sticking to representational painters and abstract sculptors, they managed to survive the uglier 80s styles. Faux graffiti, neo-German expressionism, cathode ray prole play, ecological protest trash art, and bring their quiet, chaste string of fourth-floor rooms into the calm lagoon of 90s eclectic revivalism and subdued recession chic. They prospered. Their youngest child turned 12, their oldest was filling out college applications. When Sharon first heard the rumor that Frank had left her for a young homosexual with whom he was having an affair, she had to laugh. For, far from having left her, there he was, right in the lamplit study with her, ripping pages out of art news. I don't think so, Avis, she said to the graphic artist on the other end of the line. He's right here with me. Would you like to say hello? The easy refutation was made additionally sweet by the fact that, some years before, there had been a brief, Sharon thought, romantic flare-up between her husband and this caller, an over-animated redhead with protuberant cheeks and chin. Avis was a second-wave appropriationist who made color Xeroxes of masterpieces out of art books and then signed them in an ink mixed with her own blood and urine. How could she, who had actually slept with Frank, be imagining this grotesque thing? The voice on the phone gushed as if relieved and pleased. I know, it's wildly absurd, but I heard it from two sources with absolutely solemn assurances. Who were these sources? I'm not sure they'd like you to know, but it was Ed Jaffrey and that boy who's been living with Walton Forney. What does he call himself? One of those single names like Madonna. Ah, Jojo! Well then, Sharon began... But I've heard it all from still others, Avis insisted. All over town, it's in the air. Couldn't you and Frank do something about it if it's not true? If, Sharon protested, and the thrust of her impatience carried when she put down the receiver into her conversation with Frank. Avis says you're supposed to have run off with your homosexual lover. 
I don't have a homosexual lover, Frank said, too calmly, ripping an auction ad out of the magazine. She says all of New York says you do. Well, what are you going to believe? All New York or your own experience? Here I sit, faithful to a fault, straight as a die, whatever that means. We made love just two nights ago. It seemed possibly revealing to her that he so distinctly remembered, as if heterosexual performance were a duty he checked off. He was, had always been for over 20 years, a slim blonde man several inches under six feet tall. With a narrow head, he liked to keep trim, even during those years when long hair was in fashion. Milky blue eyes set at a slight tilt, such as you see in certain taut Slavic or Norwegian faces, and a small, precise mouth. He kept pursed over teeth a shade too prominent and yellow. He was reluctant to smile as if giving something away, and was vain of his flat belly and lithe collegiate condition. He weighed himself every morning on the bathroom scale, and if he weighed a pound more than yesterday, he skipped lunch. In this, and in his general attention to his own person, he was as quietly fanatic as, it for the first time occurred to her, a woman. You know I've never liked the queer side of this business, he went on. I've just gotten used to it. I don't even think anymore who's gay and who isn't. Avis was jubilant, Sharon said. How could she think it? It took him a moment to focus on the question and realize that his answer was important to her. He became nettled. Ask her how, he said. Our brief and regrettable relationship, if that's what interests you, seems satisfactory to me at least. What troubles and amazes me, if I may say so, is how you can be taking this ridiculous rumor so seriously. I'm not frank, she insisted, then backtracked. But why would such a rumor come out of thin air? Doesn't there have to be something? Since we moved up here, we're not together so much naturally. Some days when I can't come into town, you're gone 16 hours. But Sharon, he said, like a teacher restoring discipline, removing his reading glasses from his almond-shaped eyes with their stubby, fair lashes. Don't you know me? Ever since after that dance, when you were 16, that time by the lake... She didn't want to reminisce. Their early sex had been difficult for her. She had submitted to his advances out of a larger, more social, rather idealistic attraction. She knew that together they would have the strength to get out of Cincinnati and, singly or married to others, they would stay. Well, she said, enjoying the sensation, despite the chill the rumor had awakened in her of descending to a deeper level of intimacy than usual. How well do you even know your own spouse? People are fooled all the time. Peggy Jacobson, for instance, when Henry ran off with that physical therapist, couldn't believe even when the evidence was right there in front of her. I'm deeply insulted, Frank interrupted, his mouth tense in that way when he had been making a joke but not wanting to show his teeth. My masculinity is insulted. But he couldn't deny himself a downward glance into his magazine. His tidy white hand jerked as if wanting to tear out yet another item that might be useful to their business. Intimacy had always made him nervous. She kept at it, rather hopelessly. Avis said two separate people had solemnly assured her. Who exactly? When she told him, he said, exactly as she had done. Well then, he added, you know how gays are. Malicious, mischievous. They have all that time and money on their hands. You sound jealous. Something about the way he was arguing with her strengthened Sharon's suspicion that Outrageous as the rumor was, indeed, because it was outrageous, it was true. 
In the days that followed, now that she was alert to the rumor's vaporous presence, she imagined it everywhere, on the poised faces of their staff, in the delicate, negotiatory accents of their artists' agents, and the heartier tones of their repeat customers, even in the gruff, self-occupied ramblings of the artists themselves. People seemed startled when she and Frank entered a room together. The desk receptionist and the security guard in their gallery halted their daily morning banter, and the waiters in their pet restaurant, over 59th, appeared especially effusive and attentive. Handshakes lasted a second too long, women embraced her with an extra squeeze, and she felt herself ensnared in a soft net of unspoken pity. Frank sensed her discomfort and took a certain malicious pleasure in it, enacting all the while his perfect innocence. He composed himself to appear, from her angle, aloof above the rumor, dealing professionally in so much absurdity, the art world's frantic attention-getting, studied grotesqueries, he merely intensified the fastidious dryness that had sustained their gallery through wave after wave of changing fashion, and that had, like a rocket's heat-resistant skin, insulated their launch, their escape from the comfortable riverine smugness of semi-southern puritanical Cincinnati to this metropolis of dreadful freedom. The rumor amused him, and it amused him, too, to notice how she helplessly watched to see if, in the metropolitan throngs, his eyes now followed young men, as once they had noticed and followed young women. She observed his gestures, always a bit excessively graceful and precise, distrustfully, and listened for the buttery, reedy tone of voice that might signal an invisible sex change. That even in some small fraction of her she was willing to believe the rumor justified a certain maliciousness on his part. He couldn't help teasing her, glancing over at her, say, when an especially magnetic young waiter served them, or at home, in their bedroom, pushing more brusquely than was his style at her increasing sexual unwillingness. More than once, at last away from the countless knowing eyes of their New York milieu and the privacy of their Hastings upstairs, beneath the wide Midwestern eaves, she burst into tears and struck out at him, his infuriating, impervious, apparent blamelessness. He was just like one of those photorealist nudes, merciless in every detail and yet subtly, defiantly, not there, not human. You're distant, she accused him. You've always been. I don't mean to be. You didn't used to mind my manner. You thought it was quietly masterful. I was a teenage girl. I deferred to you. It worked out, he pointed out, lifting his hands in an effete, disclaiming way from his sides to take in the room, their expensive house, their joint career. What is it that bothers you, Sharon? The idea of losing me? Or the insult to your female pride? The people who started this ridiculous rumor don't even see women. Women to them are just background noise. It's not ridiculous. If it were, why does it keep on and on, even though we're seen together all the time? For, ostensibly to quiet her and quench the rumor, he had all but ceased to go to the city alone, and took her with him, even though it meant some neglect of the house and their sons. Frank asked, who says it keeps on all the time? I've never heard it, never once, except from you. Who's mentioned it lately? Nobody. Well then, he smiled, his lips not quite parting on his curved teeth, tawny like a beaver's. You bastard, Sharon burst out. You have some stinking little secret. I don't, he serenely half-lied.
rumor had no factual basis. But was there, Frank asked himself, some truth to it after all? Not circumstantial truth, but some higher inner truth. As a young man, slight of build with artistic interests, had he not been fearful of being mistaken for a homosexual? Had he not responded to homosexual overtures as they arose in bars and locker rooms with a disproportionate terror and repugnance? Had not his early marriage, and then, ten years later, his flurry of adulterous womanizing, been an escape of sorts into safe, socially approved terrain? When he fantasized or saw a pornographic movie, was not the male organ the hero of the occasion for him at the center of every scene? Were not those slavish, lapping starlets as robot-like delegates, with glazed eyes and undisturbed coiffures venturing where he did not dare? Did he not, perhaps, envy women their privilege of worshipping the phallus? But, Frank asked himself, in fairness, arguing both sides of the case, can homosexual strands be entirely disentangled from heterosexual and that pink muck of carnal excitement, of dream-made flesh, of return to the pre-sexual womb? More broadly, had he not felt more comfortable with his father than with his mother? Was not this, in itself, a sinister reversal of the usual biology? His father had been a genteel Fourth Street lawyer, of no particular effectuality save that most his clients were from the same social class, with the same accents and comfortably narrowed aspirations, here on this plateau by the swelling Ohio. Darker and taller than Frank, with the same long teeth and primly set mouth, his father had the lawyer's gift of silence, of judicious withholding, and in his son's scattered memories of times together, a trip downtown to the trolley to buy Frank his first suit. Each summer's one or two excursions to see the Reds play at Old Crosley Field, the man said little. This prim reserve, letting so much go unstated and unacknowledged, was a relief after the daily shower of words and affection and advice Frank received from his mother. As an adult, he was attracted, he had noticed, to stoical men, taller than he, and nursing an unexpressed sadness. His favorite college roommate had been of the Saturnine type, and his pet tennis partner in Hastings, an artist he especially favored and encouraged, dour, weathered landscapists, and virtually illiterate sculptors, welded solid into their crafts and stubborn obsessions. With these men he became a catering, wifely, subtly agitated presence that Sharon would scarcely recognize. Frank's mother, once a fluffy belle from Louisville, had been gaudy, strident, sardonic, volatile, needy, demanding, loving, from her, he had inherited his artistic side, as well as his pretty blondness. But he was not especially grateful. Less, as was proposed by a famous formula he didn't know as a boy, would have been more. His mother had given him an impression of women as complex, brightly colored traps, attractive but treacherous, their petals apt to harden in an instant into knives. A certain wistful pallor, indeed, a limp helplessness, had drawn him to Sharon, and after the initial dazzlement of the avises of the world faded and fizzled, always drew him back. Other women asked more than he could provide. He was aware of other, bigger, warmer men than they had. But with Sharon, he had been a rescuing knight, slaying the dragon of the winding Ohio. Yet what more devastatingly, and less forgivably, confirmed the rumor's essential truth than her willingness, she who knew him best and owed him most, to entertain it. Her instinct had been to believe Avis even though, Far from run off, he was sitting right there in front of her eyes. He was unreal to her, he could not help but conclude, 
All those years of uxorious cohabitation, those nights of lovemaking and days of homemaking ungratefully absorbed and now suddenly dismissed because of an apparition, a shadow of gossip. On the other hand, now that the rumor existed, Frank had become more real in the eyes of Jose, the younger, daintier of the two security guards, whose daily greetings had edged beyond the perfunctory. A certain mischievous dance in the boy's sable eyes animated their employer-employee courtesies. And Jennifer, too, the severely beautiful receptionist, with her rather 60s reminiscent bangs and shawls and serapes, now treated him more relaxedly, even offhandedly, as if he had somehow dropped out of her calculations. She assumed with him a comradely slanginess. The boss was in earlier, but she went out to exchange something at Bergdorf's, as if both he and she were in roughly parallel ironic bondage to the boss. Frank's heart had a reflex loyalty to Sharon, a single sharp beat. But then he too relaxed, as if his phantom male lover and the weightless, scandal-veiled life that lived with him in some glowing apartment had bestowed at last what the city had withheld from the overworked, child-burdened married couple who had arrived 14 years ago, a halo of glamour, of debonair uncaring. In Hastings, when he and his wife attended a suburban party, the effect was less flattering. The other couples, he imagined, were slightly unsettled by the Whittiers stubbornly appearing together and became disjointed in their presence, the men drifting off in distaste, the women turning supernormal and laying up a chinkless wall of conversation about children's college applications, local zoning, and Wall Street layoffs. The women, it seemed to Frank, edged with an instinctive animal movement a few inches closer to Sharon and touched her with a deft, protective flickering on the shoulder or forearm to express solidarity or sympathy. Wes Robertson, Frank's favorite tennis partner, came over to him and grunted, How's it going? Fine, Frank said, staring up at Wes with what he hoped weren't unduly starry eyes. Wes, who had recently turned 50, had an old motorcycle accident scar on one side of his chin, a small, pale rose of discoloration that seemed to concentrate the man's self-careless manliness. Frank gave him more of an answer than he might have wanted. In the art game, we're feeling the slowdown like everybody else, but the Japanese are keeping the roof from caving in. The trouble with the Japanese, though, is from the standpoint of a marginal gallery like ours, they aren't adventurous. They want blue chips. They want guaranteed value. They can't grasp that in art, value has to be subjective to an extent. Look at their own stuff. It's all standardized. Who the hell can tell a Hiroshiki from a Hokusai? When you think about it, their whole society, their whole success really, is based on everybody being alike, everybody agreeing. The notion of art as a struggle, a gamble, as a dynamic embodiment of an existential problem, they just don't get it. He was talking too much, he knew, but he couldn't help it. Wes's scowling presence, his melancholy scarred face, and his stringy alcoholic body, which nevertheless could still whip a backhand right across the forecourt, perversely excited Frank, made him want to flirt. Wes grimaced and contemplated Frank glumly. Be around for a game Sunday? Meaning, had he really run off? Of course, why wouldn't I be? This was teasing the issue, and Frank tried to sober up to rein in. He felt a flush in his face and a stammer coming on. He asked, uh, the usual time, 10.45, more or less? Wes nodded, sure. Frank chattered on. Let's try to get court five this time. Those brats having their lessons on court two drove me crazy last time. We spent all our time retrieving their damn balls and listening to their moronic chatter. West didn't grant this attempt at evocation of past liaisons even a word, just continued his melancholy, stoical nodding.
This was one of the things, it occurred to Frank, that he liked about men. Their relational minimalism, their gender-based realization that the cupboard of life, emotionally speaking, was pretty near bare. There wasn't that tireless, irksome, bright-eyed hope women kept fluttering at you. Once, years ago, on a stag golfing trip to Bermuda, he and Wes shared a room with two single beds, and Wes had fallen asleep within a minute and started snoring, keeping Frank awake for much of the night. Contemplating the unconscious male body on its moonlit bed, Frank had been struck by the tragic dignity of this supine form, like a stone knight eroding on a tomb, the snoring profile and motionless gray silhouette, the massive, scarred warrior weight helpless as Wes's breathing struggled from phase to phase of the sleep cycle, from deep to REM to near wakefulness, that brought a few merciful minutes of silence. The next morning, Wes said Frank should have reached over and poked him in the side. That's what his wife did. But he wasn't his wife, Frank thought, though in the course of that night's ordeal, he had felt his heart make many curious motions. Among them, the heaving, all-but-impossible effort women's hearts make in overcoming men's heavy grayness and achieving a rainbow born of drizzle, love. At the opening of Ned Forsheimer's show, Forsheimer, a shy, rude, stubborn, and now elderly painter of tea-colored, wintry Connecticut landscapes, was one of Frank's pets, unfashionable yet sneakily saleable. None other than Walton Forney came up to Frank, his round face lit by white wine and odd, unquenchable self-delight, and said, Say, Frank, oh boy, uh, methinks I owe you an apology. It was Charlie Whitfield who used to run that framing shop down on 8th Street who left his wife suddenly with some little Guatemalan boy he was putting through CCNY on the side. They took off for Mexico and left the missus sitting with a shop mortgaged up to its attic and about a hundred prints of wild ducks left unframed. The thing that must have confused me, see, Charlie came from Ohio too, Columbus or Cleveland, one of those. It was, what do they call it, a Freudian slip and understandable confusion. Avis Wasserman told me Sharon wasn't all that thrilled to get the word a while ago, and you must have wondered yourself what the hell was up. We ignored it, Frank said, in a voice firmer and less catering than his usual tone. We rose above it. Walton was a number of inches shorter than Frank, with yet a bigger head. His gleaming, thin-skinned face bearing smooth jowls that had climbed into his sideburns, was shadowed blue here and there, like the moon. His bruised and powdered look somehow went with his small spaced teeth and the horizontal red tracks his glasses had left in the fat in front of his ears. The man gazed at Frank with a gleaming, sagging lower lip, his nearsighted little eyes trying to assess the damage, the depth of the grudge. Well, mea culpa, mea culpa, I guess, though I didn't tell Jojo and that poisonous Ed Jaffray to go blabbing it all over town. Well, thanks for telling me, Wally, I guess. Depending on which man he was standing with, Frank felt large and straight and sonorous, or, as with Wes, gracile and flighty. Sharon, scenting blood amid the vacuous burble of the party, pushed herself through the crowd and joined the two men. To deny Walton the pleasure, Frank quickly told her, Wally just confessed to me he started the rumor because Charlie Whitfield downtown, who did run off with somebody, came from Ohio too. Toledo, as I remember. 
Oh, that rumor? Sharon said, blinking once, as if her party mascara were sticking. I'd forgotten it. Who could believe it of Frank? Everybody, evidently, Frank said. It was possible, given the strange, willful ways of women, that she had forgotten it, even while Frank had been brooding over its possible justice. If the rumor were truly dispersed, and Walton would undoubtedly tell the story of his Freudian slip around town as a self-promoting joke on himself, Frank would feel diminished. He would lose that small sadistic power to make her watch him watching waiters in restaurants, and to bring her into town as his chaperone. He would feel emasculated if she no longer thought he had a secret. Yet that night, at the party, Walton Forney's Jojo had come up to him. He seemed, despite an earring the size of a faucet washer and a stripe of bleach in the center of his hair, unexpectedly intelligent and low-key, offering, not in so many words, a kind of apology, and praising the tea-colored landscapes being offered for sale. I've been thinking in my own work of going, you know, more traditional. You get this feeling of, like, a dead end with abstraction. The boy had a bony, rueful face, with a silvery line of a scar under one eye, and seemed uncertain in manner, hesitantly murmurous, as if at a point in life where he needed direction. That fat fool Forney could certainly not provide that, and it pleased Frank to imagine that Jojo was beginning to realize it. The car as he and Sharon drove home together along the Hudson felt close. The heater fan blew oppressively, parchingly. You were willing to believe it at first, he reminded her. Well, Avis seemed so definite, but you convinced me. How? She placed her hand high on his thigh and dug her fingers in, annoyingly, infuriatingly. You know, she said in a lower register, meant to be sexy, but almost inaudible with the noise of the heater fan. That could be mere performance, he warned her. Women are fooled that way all the time. Who says? Everybody. Books. Proust. People aren't that simple. They're simple enough, Sharon said, in a neutral, defensive tone, removing her presumptuous hand. If you say so, he said, somewhat stoically, his mind drifting, that silvery line of a scar under Jojo's left eye, lean, long muscles, snugly wrapped in white skin, lofts. Hellenic fellowship, exercise machines, direct negotiations, a simple transaction amongst equals. The rumor might be dead in the world, but in him it had come alive. Written by John Updike, was featured in the June 1991 issue of Esquire magazine. You can find more of Mr. Updike's work at Esquire.com. Esquire Features is produced by Michael Cades and Sandy Getbam Rungrat. I'm Eric Gillen. Thank you for listening.